Y Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zwei Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast, putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you, free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you guys today. I have uh, none other than John L. Wheaton with me from Wheaton Sprague Building Envelope. And John is uh, an outstanding individual, an outstanding engineer, man after my own heart, who actually has a podcast himself, which we will talk about in a little bit. But I've been a big fan of his for some time, and we follow each other on Twitter. I think he's listened to this podcast, but I know I've listened to his, and so I wanted to have him on the podcast. He actually interviewed Mark Zweig not too long ago on a, a recent podcast of his, and I'll make sure that we put that in the show notes link, but or the link in the show notes. But without further ado, John L. Wheaton, how are you doing? Randy, I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a um, man, it, it's, you know... We really, you know, with the Zweig Letter podcast, we are kind of moving into uncharted territory now. We're over mm-hmm. 200 plus episodes. We've been doing this since I just looked back 2015. Wow. And um, it is something to be able to get on the mic as often as possible. And I laugh because, you know, our podcast originally started out with Mark just reading some of his fabulous articles from the Zweig Letter, but then mm-hmm. it eventually morphed into something else. And so really exciting to be able to see what we have evolved to. And now we're able to bring on people like yourself and really it makes a difference for us. So I'd love for you just to kind of share one of the first things that we do with our guest is always try to get their superhero origin story. So I'd love <laughs> for you just to give us the cliff note version of that story. I know you could go way back and I, I always joke that some people go back to kindergarten, but you go back as far as you feel comfortable going, but I'd love for you kind of to share with the audience a little bit of your superhero origin story. Well, Randy, as Colonel Flagg used to stay on MASH, I'd tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> no, my superhero <laughs> origin. Well, first of all, we met on Twitter, first of all, and we still follow each other there. In fact, you DM'd me when you were asking me about this, and then we shared email. And for those listening that may think, what in the world would anybody want to spend time on Twitter for? Anyway, I get all kinds of 
reasonable DMs on Twitter from people like one guy just DM me the other day. Hey, why don't we work together to build the largest curtain wall consultancy in the world? I'm like, okay, how? Yeah. <laughs> so he starts dialoguing with me. So anyway, I've been following you, I think, since you joined Zwag, probably through LinkedIn and here. So it's good to meet in two dimensions, at least. So my superhero origin story, that's funny. I was born in Berwyn, Illinois, which is a little suburb of Chicago. I lived there eight years, moved from a little lot, a little eighth acre lot with the Sioux Line Railroad station behind us. My dad was an engineer. We moved from Chicago area. He went to Illinois Institute of Technology. We moved from there to a 60-acre farm in Kensington, Ohio, population 350 in 1968. I lived four years on a 60-acre farm. My dad had it as a hobby farm, and uh, my mom did the animals and the gardens, and it was a great time. My dad worked as a metallurgical engineer for TRW Corporation in Minerva. So we, we were there four years and had a lot of fun there. I was an only child. I always say that wasn't my fault. I didn't make that decision, but I am an only child. So people can take that takeaway however they want. So I had just great parents, great upbringing, you know, great surroundings, and went to West Jaca High School in Chesterland, Ohio. I've had a, Dan Winterick, who was one of the guests on one of my podcasts. He's a colleague of mine. He went to the same high school. He's an architect. He, he works out in California. He had some really good folks that graduated in uh, 1978 from West Jaguar High School. Then I went to University of Akron, which is a great journeyman engineering school. They've got a great polymer school, but they just pump out a lot of strong... University of Cincinnati, University of Akron pump out a, long, a lot of strong journeyman, get-or-done engineers. So I worked there, graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering, wanted to be a structural engineer. In fact, quick digression, my uncle, who I hope will listen to this at some point, he's in his early 80s, John Lane. He is from Illinois originally, but he lives in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And he has been there for many, many years. And when I was younger, I think I've told this on the podcast, my dad was an engineer, my uncle was an architect. I really wanted, I was torn between which one should I be? Like, what did I want to do? I love to draw with a straight edge and draw perspectives but I didn't feel terribly artistic in that way. And I was pretty good at math and I like to think quantitatively. My uncle, he said, Johnny, if you want to have fun, be an architect. If you want to make some money, be an engineer, (laughs) which the architects may say, yeah, sure, whatever, because we all make reasonable incomes. But that was his advice. But I was really attracted to the University of Akron program. When I looked at the coursework, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be a structural engineer. So I worked for a year at a company called Snell Environmental Group, which became Environmental Design Group in uh, Stowe, Ohio. They're still around. And then I, they couldn't go in the direction I wanted. So at 24, I answered a three-line ad in the newspaper in the Akron Beacon Journal, wanted structural engineers, curtain wall fabrication, CAMS, which was Custom Architectural Metal Systems, PPG Incorporated. I answered the want ad for those who are my age They'll remember young folks won't. You actually used to look in the classifieds for a job in the newspaper. Went down right. there, a guy named Yogi Sheth, who still is in the industry. He ripped the end off a bag of ex- box of extrusions. That's a mullion. I had no idea what he was talking about. And they hired me. You know, I could chew gum and walk and breathe all at the same time. I had a degree. So that's where I started. I had no idea what I was getting into, but I absolutely fell in love with. The creativity, newness, 
innovation, an emerging field known as curtain wall and cladding design and engineering. It's just stuck with me ever since. So that's a little bit of my background. Okay. Well, yeah. And it, it you know, it's so funny because I have, uh, my, in my time at Zweig, I, I did a lot of recruiting of, of structural engineers, very, very different, very different animal. And I remember I got, I cut my teeth recruiting from companies like LeMajor and some mm-hmm. other really high level st- structural engineering firms. And, mm-hmm. and I just, uh, that was like a whole different world. It was a whole different ball game in terms of uh, skill set and discipline. And these individuals tended, you know, they were different. I learned a lot, right? There were different schools of thought about structural engineering. I mean, there was, you know, you had your MIT folks, you had your Cornell folks, you had different people that came out of different programs. Yeah, different camps. That, that, you know, and different camps, yeah, in terms of different mindsets. I remember w- going into one firm where they were like, we only were looking for people with this pedigree and this background, and mm-hmm. that's it. And I was thinking to myself, at the time, I couldn't push back because I was new in the industry. And, you know, Mark told me when I first joined Zui Group back in 97, he was like, it's going to take you a couple of years to learn the industry. But once you do, it's the kind of industry that you can always work in and do things in. But at the time, I was not, I was just young. So I, I couldn't push back. And of course, then we weren't thinking about hiring people the way that companies now think about hiring people, where, you know, you look, look at things through a different lens. And so I just, I said, okay, well, that's what you want. And it was one of the toughest, probably one of the toughest executive searches that I ever had to do Mm. was for a structural engineer with that type of pedigree and background. And it was, it was really difficult, not because those individuals didn't exist, but because A, they they didn't move around that much. They all knew each other. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was very, I found it, I found it very, it was very difficult, but it, it also taught me a lot about executive search, especially in the AEC space and, you know, the kind of time and effort that you have to put into it. And and the other thing is that, you know, people that are really good at what they do, they know other people that are like them. Mm. So uh, well I picked said. up a lot from that and it was, uh, it was, it was really educate. It was a real education for me, a real eye opener. So it took me forever to fill that position, but we did fill it. And I don't know that I ever actively went out <laughs> to seek out another high-level mm. structural search like that because uh, it was just it was it was really difficult and I I have a a different level of appreciation for structural engineers more so than I do just about any other engineer in the design industry space. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that just to gas your head. I mean, yeah, I'm no. just saying that <laughs> it's just what it is. I mean, it it was just been my experience. So yeah. No, that's an interesting commentary. I mean, it's the same could be true in the legal and accounting world. You know, law firms hire University of Chicago, Yale, Harvard Law, you know, finance people on Wall Street. They're not going to come to Valparaiso or the University of Akron. They're going to hire right. people in a certain category from Ivy League. And then there's other categories. But yeah, I think for me, I'm a pragmatist. I am not an academic. I'm a journeyman and I like structural engineering, but for me, structural engineering is a means to a greater end. And the means to the greater end is how does that inform me and help support the value that I can provide in the marketplace in the form of saving on material, saving on our clients on material, on installation, on ease of working relationship. I've migrated more to kind of a kind of, I would say, an executive level design professional, which is normal for somebody of my age and time in the, in their industry. But I, I'm 
I like more of the holistic side. I love the architectural engineering. Actually, without really knowing it, my path that God led me on really allowed me to be a structural engineer in an architecturally oriented business that helped kind of push both buttons, you know, trip both levers at the same time. So I love the fact that we work with folks on both sides and we can help people achieve the vision of what they want their building to look like. Yeah. Yeah. No, without a doubt. And I like that fact. And I I know a lot of structural engineers that, you know, obviously you have to work well with architects. I mean, you have you have to work well with so many different disciplines in order to get the job done. And let's face it, if you're building anything with any vert- verticality to it, you need a structural engineer on your team in order to get things done. I'd love to find out, John, because there's so many things I want to talk to you about, and we may have to make this a two-parter. We may have to bring you back to talk about some other stuff, but I would love to find out what, at what point did you decide that, you know what, I, I like working for somebody else, but I want to hang out my own shingle. I want to kind of do something on my own as opposed to working for somebody else. When did you kind of make that mental shift and what did that look like for you? Yeah, boy, that's a good one. Yeah. So, you know, I was pretty focused early on in learning my craft and trade. I went to MK Architectural Metal. So I was at PPG's Custom Architectural Metals Division and I had to move on from there. And actually there was a point in my life, let me give you a little bit of a roundabout answer so you know a little bit more about who I am. So there was a point in my life where I just really made a definite decision to follow Christ in my life, to put my faith in Christ and Jesus Christ. And so PPG was closing their commercial architectural metal systems group. They were closing their commercial construction group. And my wife and I actually, at that point, sold our house and resigned from our jobs. And we're going to go to the mission field of all things. And we had all of that lined up. Then through a series of events, my wife got pregnant and I had to find a job and we had to get another place to stay. I, I kind of jumped into the building department at the city of Akron. And that's the city of Akron, I worked as a plans examiner. And when I was there, I actually kind of got a bug a little bit there. I met a lot of architects and a lot of builders, but I never really lost the desire to get into curtain wall. And so while I was struggling with this vocational decision, you know, do I get back, do I get back to the trying to go to the mission field or do I stay, you know, in vocational work? I went to work for my old boss from PPG at MK Architectural Metal, which is a custom architectural metal fabricator in North Canton, Ohio. And I worked there five years as a staff engineer. And there I met a ton of people. Like I met a bunch of really future clients. And so that I think is where I started to learn that my services were in demand. I learned a ton from Gary McKissick and from the staff there at MK. I just have to shout them out. Even though I really don't do any work for them, they're not a client of mine, but I learned a ton. I worked with really a bunch of people who became future clients of mine as glazing subcontractors. And while there, you know, there's ups and downs in the cycle. I got my PE license and they were very supportive of that. But things I could tell I was tapped out. I was going to be a staff engineer. I wasn't going to move in a different direction there. That was going to be what I did. I wanted to do more. I wanted to expand. I used to drive by this building and tell my wife, Someday I'm going to have an engineering company and we're going to be right there. And that became actually kind of prophetic because a few years later, we had an engineering company and it was right there. <laughs> so so I'm probably rambling a bit here, but I found people no, it's fine. recommending me and asking, you know, do you do any other work? I started to do some side work for non-competing clients and people liked what I did, the way I presented it, 
they recognize value. And I, so I was doing side work. And at one point, my partner and I, my now partner, Richard Sprague, you know, we were at MK and I said, you know, I think we're going to need to leave here. I don't know that they're going to need me long-term and I don't know that I can stay here. So I moved out on, on my own. He said he would come with me. And from day one, we always had work. We always met our payroll and we always moved forward. So I think I got the bug along the way as I, let me say a little more. I recognized, I described myself as a gap filler in some ways. And one of the things I recognized was mm-hmm. there were gaps in the industry that weren't being adequately serviced, not just technically, but there wasn't the appropriate level of value and the right mindset being transmitted in our field. I felt that there was a gap that could be filled. And, you know, like Mark and I talk, one person's pain is another person's value proposition. So that kind of just started to really, really, really burn in me. And I actually went to two other corporations, big corporations I won't name. And I pitched this idea because I thought, I got two kids and a little infant, three kids, you know, a mortgage, you know, I'm 34 years old. What am I going to do this for? And I, I pitched this idea. They were like, yeah, no, that I don't think that's going to work for us. So there was really, there was nowhere else to go unless I wanted to move. And my wife and I wanted to stay where we were around family and friends. So I started the business. Mm, mm. So it was more, it really, it was really born out of, um, almost born out of necessity where you just, you kind of said, you looked at options that were available to you or may not be and you said, you know what, maybe I can just go out, strike out on my own and do it. And certainly your faith, I'm sure, carried you a distance beyond where you currently were in your in your current profession. Yeah, or so, or ignorance, uh, and, one and, of the two, bl- or a combination. <laughs> right. You know, it says- Right, um, right, right. And you know, I, I- Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to, I was going to, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, it talks in the Bible about how, you know, to give- to store your riches in the house of the Lord. And that, you know, there's a proverb that talks about how if you put your, if you invest your money and your time in the right place, your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. And I think that relates a lot to mindset. But I remember opening up our cupboards one day in our 1200 square foot ranch house and these spices fell down on the cupboard. I was in, we were in business for ourselves. And I just thought of that truth. And I said to my wife, I said, you know what? We've never missed a paycheck. We've never missed a house payment. We've never missed a meal. And I just said to my leadership team today in a quarterly meeting, I said, we could tell you stories if you were interested in what we could tell you (laughs) stories and you would go, you have got to be kidding me. Like there's no way that this gap is going to be filled financially or whatever. And it's always been filled. So anyway, that's been good. So some of it was faith. Some of it was ignorance. Some of it was this burning desire to be in business for myself. Some of it was attrition, realizing I had to move on from my company. So a lot of different signals there. Yeah. No, well, I mean, I, hey, it, it obviously all worked out. It certainly did. And, and now you guys have uh, Wheaton Sprague. And, and, and how long have you been in, in business now? Since 1994. So 28 years. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. You guys will be getting a big 3-0 soon. So that's, that's, that's a big deal. How many employees are you guys? We're in the low 20s right now. We've been as high as mid 40s and we've gone through quite a transition through COVID. But to answer your question, we're in the low low 20s right now. We have a fairly large footprint yeah. and a bigger footprint than what our headcount would show. But I've always said we've kind of got a we've got a 2500 square foot ranch house on a 12,000 square foot foundation. Right. <laughs> so you got 
there's there's room for there's room for expansion there i'm sure so yeah so tell me this what uh you you, you brought up the pandemic and how much did your cadence change after march of 2020 because i i know a lot of firms were kind of chugging along doing well and you know things were what they were and and it just seems like we've had this great seminal moment for all of us right collectively and it's been there have been good times and there have been bad times experienced in this whole event that we call the pandemic. But how was that for you when March came around and everything kind of shut down? Mm, wow. Let me, I have to think for a second to be as succinct as possible, which isn't my forte. People on my leadership team will tell you that. <laughs> None of us really knew what to expect. We certainly, like many firms, I'm guessing, had a healthy backlog. but we really had no idea what to expect. So we went remote. We weren't prepared to go 100% remote, but we quickly responded with our IT infrastructure. I guess, Randy, I bet we went through at least two or three iterations of figuring out how do we work remotely and then in a hybrid environment. And then, you know, so it, yeah. so the first, first it seemed fine. And we actually were chugging along in April and through mid-May, no issues. And then all of a sudden, you know, we started to recognize some productivity losses and drop-offs. And then we wound up with an unprofitable quarter that manifested very quickly at the end of June. And we realized there was a lot of dissonance. We had to upgrade a lot of systems, which we did. Um, that was amazing. Heck, we weren't even, Randy, we weren't even using Microsoft Teams. It was like, well, do we use Teams or WebEx or Zoom or who uses mm. what? We finally, it seems stupid now, but it was like, no, everybody's going to use MS Teams, period. I can't imagine conducting meetings now without MS Teams. It has been a very valuable tool. <laughs> so I'd say the first step was figuring out communication, upgrading infrastructure. We went through a lot of change in staff, primarily in 2021. So I think people had time to assess, do I like this or not? Is this company doing okay or not? Is, you know, is this a time to change or not? And I think a lot of people came to that decision in this. We were certainly heavily impacted by the great transition, if you want to call it that. and. So really for the last year, there's been a lot of changes. I mean, we were a company that had very little to no staff turnover whatsoever, but both through the pandemic and the options it presented to people, I think it empowered staff, which is good to a point it empowered employees to say, gee, it's not the business owner and entrepreneur now who gets to work on their terms. I get to work remotely on my terms too. And so that opened them up to a myriad of possibilities of different recruitment vehicles and mechanisms in different firms. So we saw turnover there. And then we also, it really caused us to reorganize the business around the entrepreneurial operating system, EOS. We started that. My partner and I made that commitment last June. We started it kind of with our preliminary team in August. And so there's been some people that liked it, some people that didn't, some people that didn't believe in us, some people that did. So we've gone through some transition. So I would say, the only way to describe the last two years has been catharsis. It's been a dynamic catharsis. <laughs> and I would say the number one quality is agility, resilience and agility. Yeah. You know, it's funny you, you say that because I think that is, you know, it is a lot of people have called it the great pivot, right? Even I myself have gone through kind of a pivot of sorts in this season of the pandemic and kind of reevaluating things and you know, I, I maybe a little bit of it I'll blame on the fact that I was, you know, I turned 50 during the pandemic. So, you know, it, for <laughs> me at 50, you're, you know, I think all of us, when we turn 50, we start looking, we're like, wow, we got, 
We got less time on the front side than we did on the back side. So now we're thinking, man, what do we do next? And, you know, I think it's like you don't want to waste even one moment, right? I think life is so precious that you want to make the most of it. And I see that through leader after leader in the design industry that really, you know, recognizes and puts the time and effort into continuing to grow as individuals as well as collectively within their organizations. So, I mean, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me, and, and it's exciting to see that you, you, you were able to make a successful pivot, and you guys are still standing, and the future looks bright, right? Like I told you before we started, rec- before we started recording, I was remarking on one of your tweets from a couple of days ago, which, you know, and let me just, as an aside to anybody listening to this that's in the design industry space, and if you think Twitter is a waste, let me say this very clearly and very succinctly. <laughs> Millions of dollars in business are being done on Twitter. Yeah. Full stop. Transactions. I'll just leave that at there. You take that for what it's worth. Transactions, you take it for what it's worth, but it's true. All right. So now back to what I was saying, you know, you were remarking about how, you know, you were very bullish on the future about some of some projects that were coming online and and a number of RFPs that you had responded to. And so, you know, things are looking good for you right now. How much of it can you attribute your feeling to right now today in terms of where your company is going? How much can you attribute specifically to just where the market is versus where you are as an organization today, not like two and a half years ago? Mm, wow, that is a great question. Well, first, I let me backtrack for a second. The last six months have been brutal in our industry at least for us. I mean, it's been. I think we're the we're always the tail of the tail in our special our space of specialty delegated design engineering and consulting. But how much is it attributed to market, and how much is it attributed to us? I think it's a combination. We are more focused in our mission. We've redefined our core. Again, you talk about revet EOS. What it did was it it had us get together as a leadership team. So the first part is us. We redefined our core purpose, which is to enable facades that inspire. We defined our core values, not aspirational, but who are we? What is our DNA? It's collaboration, integrity, client conscious communication, and capable. We redefined our niche, design, engineering, science, and consulting for building facades. So we're like armed with that. We're super focused on what it is we do and the type of work we do. The market, I would say, is I'm going to say the market is no better. The market, we're getting more comfortable with the dynamics in the market. I think owners are getting edgy and tired of waiting. They're trying to push the buttons before inflation kicks in more. I've seen, you know, we scorecard nine different areas. You know, our estimated work, number of RFPs increased, our estimated work increased steadily is above our scorecard value. Our backlog has started to rise. New acquisition of work is rising in different pockets, different areas of the country because we work nationally. So I don't know, Randy, if it's any better or easier. I just think we're getting more comfortable with the weirdness of it and the ability to shuck and jive and figure out what, okay, we're going to focus on these customers in these markets, these tech centers, these areas that build hospitals, these areas that build, you know, secondary education. I mean, there there are active areas, but I just think I think people are tired and they're just ready to move forward and figure out how they're going to act in the new reality. So that's kind of a long answer, but you know, there's lots of different signals and triggers 
to kind of inform that mentality. Yeah. I mean, you almost have to be malleable to to whatever the market is giving you, right? And so, and if you're not, if you're inflexible as an organization, sometimes it the market can be very unforgiving. I, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, the market doesn't care, if right? That, if, that, I, if that resonates with you. Yeah, the market yeah, doesn't care, right? It really does. So <laughs> I always say, if you're the super innovative, if you're Steve Jobs, you know, if you're Thomas Edison, if you're Bill Gates, you create a market and the market builds around you. But with us, you know, we're a service-oriented industry. We can be innovative and we can be differentiated, but we have to say, what is the market giving and how best can we differentiate, serve, and provide value in the context of that market? So one of the guys on my leadership team, Mike Kohler, who was on, I think we were on my second podcast together, you know, he's good about manage what you can manage and control what you can control. Hey, I can't control what's going to happen tomorrow outside of me, but I can read the signals and I can talk to people. And honestly, Randy, I, th- I think the best way to be informed is to just get on teams or on the phone or in a dialogue with clients and ask, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you experiencing? And you have the ability then to make decisions. Again, control what we can control, manage what we can manage. Yeah. I, I mean, that's. I think that's the way you have to look at it. You really do. And um, I'm curious, you mentioned something earlier, the entrepreneurial operator system or operation system. Where did you where did you get that? And can you just talk a little bit about what that is for anybody that's listening that may not be familiar yeah. with that? Yes, it's called the Entrepreneurial Operating System or EOS Worldwide. It's a business operating system. So there's a variety of business operating systems like there's a franchise prototype operating system that was, you know, e- the E-Myth book and E-Myth Revisited was big on that and we set up that way early on. But sure. we we hit that ceiling at you know, five million in revenue, and we just couldn't break through it without playing hero ball and exhausting me, exhausting myself. And so we retracted some, but the retraction was necessary. And I, I really think EOS is the way for us to go. EOS, there's a couple of clients that use it. There's another industry competitor who's a respected collaborator, really, that uses it, and and some other engineering firms. And basically, EOS is best for private firms between 15 and 250. There's a book called Traction. That you could look up. There's also a book called Rocket mm-hmm. Fuel. And Rocket Fuel was the book I first read. It was introduced to me by my business and personal coach, Chuck Misha, who said, hey, this EOS system is built on kind of a dynamic duo, kind of a two-person. It's best for private companies. It's really built on a visionary integrator relationship with a leadership team. And I think what it would do is it would help protect your firm from your visionary ideas and constant tinkering and changing by filtering your vision through an integrator who's like a COO type, your partner, and put in a a leadership team that can execute the mission of the business and free you to kind of go explore new paths. So I think, you know, we're still working through it. It's expensive. It takes time. It's difficult. It requires a lot of candor. Some people get left behind, but EOS is a really good, it's it's like if if I go to the New England Patriots, I'm going to bolt into the Bill Belichick operating system. And if I go to the San Francisco 49ers, I'm probably going to bolt into the Bill Walsh operating system. If you come to Wheaton Spray, you're going to bolt into the entrepreneurial operating system as defined by others. They basically say, if you plug into this, you define it this way, you're going to experience success. So that's what we're working through. Yeah, I like that. I, I, it's good. And it's funny because I'm a, I'm a huge Michael Gerber fan with E-Myth, but mm-hmm. you know, all that you're describing and talking about E-Myth and EOS, these are just systems, just system. right? Yep. And if you put systems in place, 
proper systems in place, you and follow them properly and adhere to whatever the tenets are of those systems for the level of success and outcome that you're looking for, you will find it. You will, you find, will eventually yeah. find it, right? Yep. And and so, yeah. And and so, I mean, I remember the first time I ever read E-Myth, it was just a mind-blown moment. Me I was too. like, oh my God, this is like so perfect. And he's so right. Yeah. And it's such a good book. I actually would recommend anybody to read that book for the foundational understanding of what Gerber represents in that. And yeah. then he has a book, E-Myth Book Revisited. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're, I mean, and I think some people listening to this may need to check out the EOS system and check out these two books, Traction and Rocket Fuel, because a lot of times there are firms that I run across that sometimes seem to be running in mud and not quite getting to where they want to be. And they may be very good firms and they may be, and the leadership may be well-intended and well-meaning, but they don't have a structure in place yeah. to get them to that next level. Yeah, and y- every organization needs to have some structure to get to that next level. You're so right. And you know those listening to this that may have worked for us in the past, honestly, I know there's people that left because they're like, what are you guys doing? You know, I mean, leadership is necessary, but leadership is vulnerable. And when you lead any organization or any group, you're out there, you're hung out there by the bungee cord and everybody gets to see in a magnified way, your successes and failures. You know, and sometimes it drives people crazy. You know, we we were a little bit aimless trying to figure out how are we going to bring this to the next level. The franchise prototype worked great for us for many years. But what EOS allows, honestly, with all candor, what EOS mainly does is it puts constraints around the visionary. And those on my staff that are listening would know what the visionary does is like, I got a great idea. Let's do this. And then some other cool idea comes along and you go, hey, let's try this too. Let's try that. And they're like, what are we doing? And so it can really kind of become, you know, a hero with 100, 100 workers, which that's not the model you want to follow. And what EOS does is it puts a constraint around the visionary and it actually says to the visionary, you are not allowed to bring anything new outside of the core mission and purpose of the business without running that idea through your integrator your COO. And if they say no, you have to be willing to submit to their no. You have to defer to them for the integrity of the business. And if he says, yeah, you bring it to the leadership team and the leadership team gets to decide if it should be something that they want to incorporate or not into the business. And that is tough. That is. They should call that no squirrels allowed. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Oh, you know. <laughs> yes, yeah, squirrel, squirrel. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that book away. So, man, that you are you certainly are are dropping some knowledge here on this. What are your thoughts about just kind of like the work environment as a whole, right? The in terms of how that has changed. And I heard you talk about it on one of your podcast episodes about just the ability to create flexibility in the work environment and what that looks like for today's design industry employees, because it's a lot different than the way things were in 97. In 97, it was, hey, you sit at your desk, sit at your computer, put your head down and don't spoke until spoken to. And you know we'll let yeah. you know when you know we're ready to, to do this <laughs> or that, or, or we'll let you know when evaluations are coming up. And I've been doing so much studying lately on the uh, process of motivation and, and, and how important it is to really have have a system in place about how you motivate your employees. And to deal with motivation haphazardly in your organization is almost a death sentence because people want to work and follow and adhere to a system that has a goal in place 
that has an outcome that they can, you know, I like to say taste, see, and touch. And uh, I'd be curious to know how you've changed since the pandemic in terms of the flexibility in your work environment. And are you doing anything unique that you had you have discovered over the, over the past couple of years has really helped and afforded you the opportunity to give everybody in your organization the freedom and flexibility that they need to be the best version of themselves while at Wheaton Sprague? And I know that's a mouthful, but no, that's I, good. I, I'm, I'm, I, I think you have a keen answer for this. So, boy, that is such a good question. Let me try to focus on the empowerment part of this question first, the staff question. COVID and the acceleration of how do we work in a remote hybrid or or hybrid office environment, it's accelerated. It's empowered people in an accelerated fashion. Frankly, the jury is still out on whether it's all good or not. There's a lot of industry chatter behind the door as to, are we remote working ourselves into oblivion? You know, is it really, really good for people or not? But my clients don't care where we work from, what clothes we wear, what our office space looks like. They care about results and value, period, end of story. Are you time constraining the deliverable and are you getting me the work product I need? So the thing that's changed substantially for us, partly through attrition, you know, and partly through choice is we closed a brick and mortar office in North Carolina and a brick and mortar office in Minnesota. Partly that was through a couple of resignations of key people, one who moved on to a pretty significant position with a client as a director of engineering and another one who moved out of the industry, partly because he got bumped from the leadership, partly because he just wanted to make other choices. Fantastic man. And then we just decided, well, we had one person left up there and one person left in North Carolina, one person in Minnesota. So we closed two offices. So what we really did was we said, we're a national firm with an office in Connecticut and a headquarters in Northeast Ohio. And you're either, you are attached to either the Connecticut location or you're attached to the Ohio location in our national work. So we have a guy, like we hired a guy, a senior engineer, PE, who lives in Columbus. You know, he doesn't have to come into the office. We hired a consultant from Chicago that moved here over a year ago who lives 30 minutes away and she's been in our office two or three times. She works out of her home, partly because of the nature of her work. Anyway, let me pull back and not ramble as much. So it's really changed the tone of our business. It's opened us up to a national recruiting pool in some ways, not every way. We still like some proximity, but it's given us more options. So that's the first piece. The unintended consequence, the thing that I'm most surprised with is that I have gotten better. I never thought I would say this, Randy, but I've had more client meetings, more interactions with customers over Teams in virtual meeting than I could ever fit into a month or a year traveling. Now, there is a place to travel, especially with client prospects. If you can influence a room well, you're better off to be in person. But once you have an existing relationship, I find clients prefer to get on Teams. The other unintended consequence for me as a design professional is I can be way more productive now in a Bluebeam session on Teams or just doing a QC review of a set of calculations or drawings in Bluebeam than I ever was on paper or in a room. And that has been the unintended consequence for me. I haven't touched a piece of paper. I mean, I I can't, (laughs) we don't send out paper anymore. We send out PDFs. So that's a long answer, but those are two of the significant pieces for me. 
Yeah, no, I, I, and I can appreciate that. And I think we've all had to kind of embrace technology, right? The trees thank us for sure. But <laughs> I think a lot of times there are, there's just this whole, you know, idea that, you know, some things are best left translated or shared in different modes. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're finding that. I mean, the, the technology that you're mentioning, Microsoft Teams, I've noticed a lot of design firms are using that now and Bluebeam. I mean, there's all these tools that are available to us and they keep getting better. That's the thing about it. For the work that we do in the design industry and what is required of of every design professional, there are iterations of tools that are coming out that just afford you the ability to do your job more efficiently. So there's no need to, you know, try to put a square peg into a round hole when there's plenty of round holes, uh, square holes all over the place for you to fit that into. And there's opportunity for you to take advantage of that. So yeah, I just keep encouraging people to embrace the technology that is there. And I, I was having this conversation back in the day when we were talking to firms about doing websites and, you know, it was heresy and it was like, well, what is this? We, we don't have time for that, you yeah. know, or, or talking to marketing departments about really ramping things up. And so, I mean, you, you've kind of, you've embraced a lot of what, what we're talking about here to the point where you even started a podcast called the Creating Structure Podcast. And I'm curious because, I mean, this is something obviously near and dear to my heart as somebody that's produced more than a thousand podcast episodes himself. You know, whenever I see somebody in the design industry space that's doing a podcast, I can think of Michael Rasika, the Young Architect Podcast, and Mark LePage. And, and uh, there's just so many outstanding podcasters in this space. I'm curious to know, what was your inspiration to actually start a podcast? It wasn't like you already didn't have a ton of things you had to do to begin <laughs> with, but you said, you know what, in addition to Wheaton Sprague and being the CEO here and going out and trying to continue to build this company, I'm going to start a podcast. What was your inspiration to do that? Yeah, that, that's really good. Thanks for that. I had been thinking about it for quite some time. First of all, let me say, let me drop this bomb, but this is partly who I am. I believe I'm of the opinion that every firm in the design profession really should be positioned as a marketing firm that happens to do design and engineering and architecture or a communications company that happens to do this. So I view, first of all, I view any enterprise I am involved with, I view it as a marketing and advertising based company that happens to deliver a particular thing because i think that's where we lack the most what we lack the most in AEC is visibility and awareness i primarily did a podcast because i wanted to do it because i like it because i love to talk to people and i recognized that it was a very quickly emerging trend i enjoy listening to podcasts i get a lot from them and i just saw a gap out there i thought ain't nobody doing this in our business Plus, my son is a certified audio technician, producer from Sound Institute of America, whatever the name of the group is. But, you know, he actually can get in a recording studio and produce audio. He's got all the tools and equipment for it. So I thought, he actually said, I'm like, we should do this. And he said, I'll figure it out for you. So he's the one that introduced me to the bus sprout platform. I said, tell me what equipment I need, like just spec it all. And he did it and we got going on it. But you know, I, I would be disingenuous if I said, you know, Randy, I started it because I really wanted to emphasize our brand and bring that to the world. And, you know, yeah, it points to our brand and my brand, but I did it because I wanted to do it. I did it because I wanted to give customers a voice because there's a lot of 
customers that have a lot to say and I wanted the world to hear it. And I just love doing it. So those are the reasons. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm, this is a shameless plug here, but so what have you found? Because I get a lot of pushback from people in the design industry space that, hey, you know, I don't know if the market's right for us to do a podcast. I'm just putting it out there. Everybody, <laughs> every company, every organization, every business, for-profit, non-profit needs to have an aspect of their story told through voice, right? Yeah. Which is the medium that we're using now. This is the platform that we're using. Yep. We are using voice. You're listening to our voices, whether you're on a run, walking the dog, washing the dishes, in traffic, whatever, you're listening to our voices right now. It's one of the most intimate settings that you can create. Mm-hmm. It's a lot different than watching a video. It can be much different than reading a blog post or even reading a Twitter post. The bottom line is that the voice is so profound and it has such a natural connection. Mm-hmm. It's funny because as as I started doing the Zweig Letter podcast, people would say, oh, they, you know, they act they, like they knew me, but it was just because they were listening to the podcast all the right. time and they heard my voice and they were like, you know, we felt like w- well-worn friends. And I'm like, yeah, I got, I mean, that's that's one of the unintended, really positive effects of a podcast. But I think that, I mean, what you're saying is is so true, right? I mean, every, like if you're a design firm, every client that you work with, they all have a story. Interview them, tell their story, learn more about them, understand their why. I mean, why did they do the things that they do? I mean, we've spent almost 45 minutes here with John talking about his why uh, for Wheat and Sprague, but I mean, clearly he has kind of set it up where he's been able to have conversations. And I got to tell you this, nobody... There's not a person out there that doesn't like to talk about themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Period. So I, you know, I tell people all the time, John, I've never been told no, I don't want to be on your podcast. And sometimes it might be a timing issue, scheduling, stuff like that, where it's like, wait, yeah, I want to do it. I just got to find the right time. But no one has ever told me no. And that's the one thing that I sold to Mark and Chad when we originally wanted to start and do mm. this podcast. I was like, listen, it's going to be valuable let alone for the simple fact that we can get in front of potential clients and our current clients and maybe just build a better relationship with them in a different way. Because the heavy lifting is kind of really done by the person do, you know, conducting the interview, right? Because mm-hmm. I've got to yeah. do all the prep and all this other stuff. You just have to show up and talk. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about anything else. You don't have to write 600 to 1,000 words and have it proofed and go back for three or four edits and all that stuff. You just have to come show up and talk and, yep. and go from there. And if you're in front of the right interviewer, you can really be made to look great. It, <laughs> That's just the way it works. So. I, I couldn't agree more, of course, as a pot, fellow part-time podcaster. I believe in, you know, Seth Godin says this really well. He says, you got to decide what you're going to do for free and you got to decide what you're going to do for money. So if Seth Godin blogs for free every day, you know, three or four or 5,000 days in a row. But if you want him to speak, he has a fixed fee and he always speaks for money. I podcast for free because I want to put value into the marketplace. And I am so gratified. I do it for me and for us and for the company. I tie it into the company. But I've been so gratified. I've had people send me notes of encouragement. I list, hey, John, I'm so-and-so. You don't know me. Literally, this message, my son was on your podcast. I never heard clearly what he really did until you framed it on the podcast and let him tell his story. I understand it better. Thank you for putting my son in the limelight. I had a guy say to me, I was looking for something. I didn't know what it was. And I stumbled on creating structure podcasts and I found it. It is exactly what I wanted. It's exactly what I want to have. 
But let me echo your statement, but let me make it even bigger. As the world gets flatter and technology gets more accessible, if we as design firm professionals, if we do not have a focus on telling our story through print, through website, through video, through audio, there are fewer and fewer ways to differentiate. And I'm going to frame it as a no-oriented statement. Go ahead. Please don't. Don't start your podcast. Don't blog. Forget about it. Because as AI and technology gets more and more sophisticated, some of what we do will no longer exist. But there will always be a story to tell, and there will always be value to give to the marketplace, and there will always be some things to do, whether statutorily required or whether because a client wants a cool thing. But please don't podcast because there's so much power to it. It just leverages those other companies in a more powerful way. Again, however you tell your story, it has to be told. Yeah, it does. It really does. And and I, I thank you for that because I mean you you are you obviously I'm the choir. You're preaching to me. I mean it's just <laughs> it's it's easy. And I, I tell people this I tell people this all the time. So it's just one of those things where, hey, you know, you need to be uncomfortable for a minute and just try it out because you'll find that, oh my gosh, this is a lot easier and it's almost therapeutic is what I've heard clients say. And everybody that has uh that I've worked with and, and actually done podcasts for them, because I do some external and internal podcasting for other companies. But you know, this a lot of what I've done was based out of and born out of what I've, I'm doing here with the Zweigletter podcast. Mm-hmm. Because the goal with the Zweigletter podcast is to extend the brand out externally to the world mm-hmm. and tell them what we're all about. Not everybody knows who Mark Zweig or Chad Kleinens or Jamie Claire Kaiser are. Yeah. And that's fine. Not everybody's going to know them. I mean, that's just the way life is. Not everybody's going to know John L. Wheaton. Right. But you know, there's a chance that you could get your information out there into the nether regions and the interwebs and the way things are nowadays where Google is now parsing and allowing you to search audio. And because of that, in the next few years, when you do searches, a lot of this information is going to come up and it's already coming up. Yeah, so, you're right. You know, I just think people need to kind of think think of it differently. That's all. Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to I don't want to beat this is my drum that I beat every day, but yeah. I'm telling you, anybody listening to this that's even halfway on the fence or kind of thinking about it, just do it. You know, just try it out. Yeah. And you'll see the benefits and- of it. If nothing else, you'll get to know some of your clients better and you can tell your story. You know, and the other thing, Randy, I agree. The other thing I, you know, because in the end, we have a lot to do, right, as design professionals and as leaders of design professional firms. And in the end, we've got to book work, get work done, build revenue, create work in progress, you know, make a profit, retain staff. There's all these things. But the podcast piece, it, yeah, it has this, this therapeutic element to it. And the other thing I would recommend if people are thinking about if they're on the fence is I think something like 80% of the podcasts on Apple podcasts have five episodes or less. So people get started and they realize, wow, this is tough. Have a topic, have a focus, have a guest list, have somebody to produce the audio content, have a platform because it's really, it is, as you mentioned, Randy, as an interviewer, it's emotionally, I mean, you're emotionally fatigued at the end of a podcast. You build that emotional muscle, but I wouldn't want somebody to start a podcast. I can't tell you how many I see people, oh, I'm going to start a podcast. You never hear from them after one or two or four. I don't want to ever start anything yeah. that I don't want to keep going. So we're on th- podcast 31. We're ready to start probably season three, but season one just went on for a year and three quarter. So get it in the queue and you got to keep at it for at least a year and see how it goes. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with I agree with that one hundred percent. And and uh, you're you're right. It is most people hit do hit pod fade, and you know we hear a lot of stories. There may be two million plus podcast shows on Apple Podcasts, but I think actively there's like less than four hundred and fifty thousand active podcasts, and those would be podcasts that are recording with some regularity in terms of the cadence of yeah. when they produce a show. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You want everything that you said is one hundred one hundred percent spot on. And then I would go one step further and say, you want to probably have 10 episodes worth of content ready to go yep. at the start, because then that will get you over that hump. And actually, it's easier to create that content. It's easier than you think. So um, yep. to and, take that for what it's worth. And I do want to encourage people to like, well, John, that's easy for you. I mean, you've been doing this for 30 years and it's nice that you can do a podcast, but I don't have time. Hey, I still participate in leadership team meetings. I still help lead an engineering group. I still review and seal calculations. I still review QC reports. I write a lot of proposals. I engage with a lot of customers. The podcast is a side gig. Like I just do that and blogging as a side gig because I like it and the, all the things I said before. So it, it is what it is. We have to run our businesses. That business comes first. The devotion to that business and the people in that business come first. So it's just a question of what are our priorities. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And trust me, we, we make time for the things that we really want to do. So that's just kind of the way it is. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, all right, well, I'm not going to, that horse is dead. We've beat it <laughs> enough, but if nothing else, and, and I'm being funny folks, but I did, you know, I was glad that when I knew John was coming on, I was like, man, I definitely want to have him talk about his podcasting journey because it is important for people to hear that it is possible to do. And so I'm excited that you get to hear firsthand from somebody that's actually done it, that is a peer of yours in this space. And so I think we'll find that this is a great place for us to put a pin in this conversation. So as we wind up, John, I would love for you to kind of, if people want to reach out to you and connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I mean, I try to put as many, you know, you follow me and we follow each other on Instagram and Twitter and a variety of places. My philosophy is to have as many potential channels as possible through which to communicate with somebody. I mean, you can communicate with me by Pony Express for all I care, you know, whatever floats your boat. But if you're not connected to me, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. That's probably the primary place. LinkedIn's very underrated. That's a whole other conversation. But you can connect with me on LinkedIn, you know, John Wheaton, PE Lead AP. You can connect with me on Twitter and you can communicate with me there. You can connect with me on Instagram, or you can connect with the company on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I keep Facebook kind of reserved for my, quote, living room. I don't usually connect with business folks unless they're friends on Facebook. So yeah, you can communicate with me in all those ways. And my email, my company email is in my LinkedIn profile. So yeah, those are good ways to communicate. Well, that's perfect. And and we'll make sure we put all of that in the show notes so you guys know how to connect with John moving forward. And certainly he is he is somebody worth following, somebody worth connecting to. If you ever have a question, I'm sure he'll be happy to oblige you with an answer. And uh, he's just doing good, good work and good business with uh, Wheaton Sprague out there in Ohio. So John, thank you so much for joining us on the Zweig Letter Podcast. We really Really appreciate it. And uh, we're, we're going to have to re rewind this and do it again. And I, I already have some ideas of some things we could talk about. So, but uh, I appreciate that. Thank you for, for coming on. 
You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks for that. I'll look forward. Anytime you want to schedule something, let me know. Absolutely. Well, folks, there you have it. Another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. To learn more about one of the oldest newsletters in the design industry, visit zweiggroup.com. You can read articles online, listen to this podcast, and sign up for a free subscription to the newsletter and have it delivered right into your email inbox every Monday morning. Sign up today. For more information about Zweig Group's advisory services or any Zweig Group publications, visit zweiggroup.com. You can subscribe to the Zweig Letter podcast wherever you listen to it, and please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and we'll see you soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Zweig Letter podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to the Zweig Letter, please visit thezweigletter.com slash subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.